as entrepreneurs, we're out there gonna make a huge difference. And one of the biggest challenges is to make sure we make a difference in our own enlightened self-interest. We know if we deliver value to our customers, our clients, we're gonna create value for ourselves. But we see over and over again, so many entrepreneurs making substantial mistakes that are extremely costly, that not only do damage to their business and to their clients, but to themselves. And you know, unless you have a business that's profitable, sustainable, you're doing a disservice to your clients and your customers. Well, I have a, a really a, a great friend, tremendous entrepreneur with us today, Richard Wilson. And Richard is a best-selling author of a book. Uh, let me pull up the title so I have it exactly right. I've read it, uh, but too long ago, Richard, The Single Family Office. And we're going to talk about what is a family office. But as entrepreneurs, we need to be thinking, even if we don't have the wealth yet for a single family office, to act like that because it's some of the smartest decisions made. And, and one of the reasons I asked Richard to come on and join us to share his insights is he is the founder of one of the largest family office associations. He's a CEO, currently a CEO, and he's a fellow entrepreneur. He has his own business, Wilson uh, Holding, and, and just a tremendous insights he's going to be sharing with you. Because here at AES Nation, we're all about accelerating our mutual entrepreneurial success. I'm John Bowen. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Ordinary success? No way. You want amazing, remarkable, exceptional breakthroughs. Dig deep. Think bold. Drive hard. Watch yourself soar beyond your dreams. AESNation.com. Richard Wilson, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and joining me today. Thank you, John. Well, it's, it's a real pleasure. I mean, we've known each other through mutual friends. We've had a couple of conversations along the way, but this is the first time I've been able to share you with our audience. And uh, Richard, you're out there making a difference. I, I, yes, there's a certain people that I talk with that sometimes I feel like a slacker. I've got a few businesses too, but I think you've got more going on than me here. And, and you are definitely you know, high energy, really helping a lot of fellow entrepreneurs because that's where wealth comes from so often in the US. And what I'd love to do though, is before we dive into you know, all the lessons learned and you're gonna share with our audience, is to go ahead and really have this whole concept of, you know, how did you get here? Because, I mean, again, most of us, you know, don't wake up at five and say, I'm going to start a family office. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. How, how did this all come sure. about? Sure. Well, the, uh, the two-minute version is that, you know, I've been starting businesses my whole life, you know, through high school. I started five businesses. I was calling people through the directory at my high school and trying to sell their parents on long distance telephone service through a network marketing company. I started and sold a small business in college. And in short, uh, I eventually got bored and got into capital raising for hedge funds, fund the funds and SMA managers. And what I found was that when I came across the topic of family offices, which are basically wealth management groups and organizations that serve people with 50 million, 100 million, or many times a billion dollars or more in capital. It's a very specialized wealth management niche. But what was interesting is there was 500 books written on wealth management and nothing written on family offices. And this was back in 2006, 2007. And there were a few books back then, but literally not a single website that just was dedicated to helping people like myself learn more about the industry. So 
I just thought it was backwards that the most valuable part of the wealth management industry had nothing written on it. So I started writing on it daily, just selfishly to learn more about the industry and kind of bring everything together. I was reading on Bloomberg, Financial Times, and elsewhere, and you know, bought FamilyOffices.com and made it the first website to be focused on just giving away information on the space. And as that took off and got thousands of hits a day, um, you know, the whole business exploded from there. And long story short, we've created the first platform business focused on the family office industry, meaning we have seven different lines of products and services and a lot of media assets. And um, it's a lot of fun because it's like something that no one else was doing, but there's a great need for. And that's, I think, what a lot of people are looking for, you know, that hungry crowd, you know, as John Carlton or Gary Halbert are, are famous for, for saying they're always looking for. And for those of you who don't know those two names, they're some of the most famous. One's still living. He's in my CEO group, John Carlton. But uh, okay. Gary's passed away a while ago, but some of the most famous copywriters. But I'm going to come back. And one of the things those guys would both say is, we've got to make sure that we're not using jargon. In family office, I, you know, I grew up in the financial services industry. And I never, you know, I mean, it took me a while to figure out what a family office was. And for our fellow entrepreneurs who aren't sure, why don't, why don't we break out kind of, you know, what is a family office and who do, you know, who, who uses those? And then also why, okay, if I have less than what it needs for a family office, why shouldn't I just, you know, turn off this podcast right away? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, don't turn it off because what I'm going to do is share all of the strategies on how you know, the billionaire clients we serve and $100 million client, clients we serve made their wealth and are keeping and growing their wealth. I think those strategies and those models, the uh, proprietary kind of machines that they've built to build their wealth is the most exciting thing about what I do. So definitely stay with us for that. It's going to be 10% on the finance industry here. So the definition of a family office is really a holistic, full balance sheet wealth management solution for a wealthy individual or a group of families and individuals. And there's really only two major classifications of family offices. There's a single family office, which is just for, you know, you, John, if you sold your business for $100 million, you might want a team serving only you. That'd be a single family office. And then a multifamily office is simply a wealth management firm that's focused on 20, 50 millionaires, centimillionaires or higher. And they might have five clients or 200 clients but they're trying to create a more holistic wealth management experience. And the whole reason the industry exists is that if you did sell your business for $100 million, but you sold it the day after a tax law changed, or you put the proceeds of that sale into the wrong type of legal structure in the wrong jurisdiction, that mistake, that one mistake, could cost you, let's say, 1% of your wealth. Let's say you had a 1% increase in taxation on that $100 million sale, well, that million dollar fee, that million dollar cost you paid that was extra, could have paid for a full-time team to serve only you on insurance, investments, risk management, charitable giving, tax optimization, you know, multi-generational planning and giving. So really, if you make a small mistake and you're a billionaire, it could be a $3 million mistake. If you're only worth a million dollars, you could make a pretty big mistake and it's still not gonna pay for anything more than the secretary you know, with no no high degree, you know, no college degree. So that's why the industry exists. And I think that the other reason it's really important people understand is that if you run a publicly traded company or if you own 117 different commercial real estate assets, as one of our clients does, you don't have time to remember what your CPA said in January and communicate that to your insurance agent in March and then somehow tell your wealth manager that you need to structure something a certain way because your custom state attorney said so. 
typically your advisors are not speaking to each other. I think most of us here in the video will recognize that your advisors aren't speaking to each other very much at all. If they are, it maybe is two times a year. So how is a really busy person supposed to keep that all straight in their heads? So that's why the, the industry needs to be there and there needs to be a quarterback for these ultra wealthy organizing their affairs and keeping track of all the moving parts. Well, and really, Richard, thank you for the definition. It's a great one. And I, I see in our industry uh, so often that, you know, what happens is we, as entrepreneurs, we, we, we kind of go to, you know, just somebody as a financial advisor that we grew with. And particularly as we accumulate wealth, um, there are different issues. I mean, you know, the magnitude that you talked about of a, you know, of a sale, you know, having it off 1%. But I mean, you and I have seen times where it's a lot more than that. And it can easily right. fund, uh, you know, the family office, as well as for those of us who don't have $100 million or even $50 million, what we have is we can learn from these fellow entrepreneurs who have built tremendous wealth and then are preserving it. So I, I want to go to that, Richard. And and one of the things that you know you were you and I've had a chance to visit on this, and I know this is uh, something that you do in building your businesses and your fellow entrepreneurs that you see have the most wealth, is they're very selective on uh, clients and customers that they actually work with. And maybe you know talk about how you envision that and how our fellow entrepreneurs can really use that to accelerate their success even more. Sure, I think many of the families have realized that they want to work with the best person in the niche. And they realize that if we're all business people, then we're all looking for some long-term upside. It's not just about the hourly rate you pay somebody. So many times the families take the strategy of securing the best brain trust in their industry or the best one or two joint venture partners so they can roll up their industry and they're willing to provide profit incentives and revenue shares or profit shares with those people. And I think that can help you leapfrog competition. When you don't have many resources, you have to provide the equity or the profit sharing. But if you do it on a per project basis, I've seen a lot of families use that strategy. And I've also seen families use a strategy that any entrepreneur could use. And that is to, when you define your sandbox and where you're gonna compete, to identify who controls the hubs of relationships and media channels in that area and make them your partners. So your influence kind of blankets the industry and you either get first look at a new client or first introduction to a new lead or, you know, massive exposure through those different hubs. So I think that, you know, that's a strategy I see families use quite often preempting the competition by, you know, going after the smartest people in the industry and getting them on their side. Yeah, it's, I mean, really identifying the influencers early on. I, I see this over and over too. I mean, we, we just did a big study with Dan Sullivan and Joe Polish of uh, right. uh, Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach, Joe Polish of Genius Network uh, Mastermind Group. And what we did is we surveyed 3,500 entrepreneurs. And one of the things that was you, a very high correlation of success was uh, those who were good at networking with influencers, the movers and shakers in whatever industry they were in. And this is something you know, that we see over and over again. And you know, I would encourage everyone, I look at it oftentimes that you can create these strategic partnerships, sometimes joint ventures, but the opportunity to do that is you know, just huge and it, and it can be preemptive. One of the things, though, Richard, that uh, you've found, too, and I share this a lot, uh, you know, in the different businesses, this whole concept of niche 
marketing, you know, kind of that 360 niche marketing. Uh, tell us about that. How, how, are, how are you seeing the, these most successful entrepreneurs uh, with the family offices? So they've created tremendous wealth. How are they actually doing this? Right. I think that's a great point. That leads directly into, you know, it connects to the past point. Of once you identify the influence, influencers and you identify the most highly expert people in your niche industry, then you can become one of the influencers yourself. And it's by collecting all those resources that you can do it. So a great example of doing this would be when we first got in the family office industry in the first three years, I wrote a book through Wiley uh, called The Family Office Book. And actually, I think the better book is the more recently one, recently written book, the single family office book. But in both cases, what I did was I looked at the industry and said, I know this much. I, I'm 80% confident that I'm on the ball, but I want to make sure that I'm not missing something, missing a new trend. And I want to build new relationships with people who are hard to get on the phone. And so what I did was tell them, I'm writing this book. I've written 200 pages so far. I'm interviewing 30 family office executives. I'd like to interview you. And I'd interview them and put their names and interviews in the book and gave them exposure through my media medium. And it cost me nothing to do, but I got access to over $20 billion plus family offices. All of a sudden, I was one of the more well-connected people in the industry, and it made sure that when somebody got that book, whether it's a single family office book or the older one, that it was gonna be really valuable because nobody else had taken the time to interview 30 experts and put it in a book. And so I think that's something that any entrepreneur can use, no matter what area you're in. If you have three types of customers and one type is the most profitable, I don't care if it's only an audience of 20 publicly traded company CEOs, it's gonna be worth the time to interview those 20 and write a book, even if it's just to win over two or three of those publicly traded companies, it could be a game changer for your business. And I really think that's a template that anybody can use. And there's probably eight hours of content we could talk about on niche thought leadership marketing, but I think that's just a really simple blueprint and something I learned from a uh, mentor, uh, Brian Tracy, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. He's you know, an avid uh, reader and writer, and um, it served him very well, you know, sharing you know, just being very prolific in his career. I, I can still remember, I've, I've met Brian in more recent years, but listening to his cassette tapes of my commute right. uh, along the way uh, uh, were extremely valuable. But I, I do want to kind of go and just reiterate this too. I, I've found, I, I, I write an awful lot of books. Richard, I knew of you. One of the first things I did is we hadn't really met is we had a conversation. Then I asked you to come on to the podcast and, and the reason, you know, it's much like doing the interviews that you talked about in the book. I don't care whether you're doing a podcast, whether you're doing, you know, audio, video, whether you're doing a book. Uh, we teach this to our coaching clients on the financial advisor side. And I got to tell you, this is a game changer. Uh, it, it is. It's so easy. You know, it's so hard to connect with everybody. We're all busy doing it, doing it, doing it. But I mean, uh, how, how many people turned you down of these successful family office executives that you called, uh, how many, you know, didn't follow through? I mean, we always get some, but what percentage sure. do you think? So I probably reached out to, um, around a hundred family offices. Um, and that probably secured about half the interviews. So probably mm -hmm. about 15 out of a hundred reach outs. But then I also had built up this LinkedIn group and email list. And we had probably 50 people offer to do the interview, but I wanted to whittle it down to like the real family offices and the billion dollar plus groups. So we got it done through those two ways. But I think that if you identify 
I think the real trick for me and to make it motivating long term is if you identify a niche market like single family offices or billionaire families or if you are in the IT world, maybe it's something, uh, some new niche within that that only publicly traded companies need an integrated, you know, holistic IT solution, you know, and it's a million dollar package you could sell, for example. If you identify that one niche that it doesn't matter how many years it takes to be number one in that niche, but it will be worth it if you could ever achieve that status, then you'll do whatever it takes. And that includes getting the category killer domain name. We spent $140,000 to buy privateequity.com last year. Um, you know, doing that, writing the book, even if it takes you 700 hours, you know, doing a podcast, a newsletter, LinkedIn group, Facebook group, and figuring out on Google how to get a PowerPoint to rank for that keyword, you know, on SlideShare, um, get your Twitter account to rank and use other websites. You know, a big trick for this is if you want to do very well in a niche and, you know, let's say the niche is single family offices, then you just write a book with that exact title and it's going to auto rank through Amazon on Google long term, you know, in almost every case because Amazon is in bed with Google and they want all their book titles to rank very highly. So if you want to be known as the Miami family office or if you want to be known as the publicly traded company IT consultants, if that was a term that people were using to find a consultant, then you would find how, how to write a book with that title and just give a massive amount of value within that book and build your whole marketing funnel to that niche sandbox area. Because what happens is that the largest embedded competitors have 20 lines of products and services. They're not focused only on that high-end solution. They're not focused only on what's most profitable. And so that's your advantage is you can be agile and laser focused on the most valuable client and carve out that little spot for yourself. Uh, through all these marketing strategies. Well, and we do a lot of research on this, Richard, and you know, people think you, know, you need to be an authority. An authority to us is somebody who can deliver a great experience that's an expert in that area. But the second right. part is they have to be a celebrity as well because what happens is that they, at that point, you'll have to rise above the, the crowd. And you know, the, the messages you're sharing, I mean, I, I'm going to just say these are so powerful. And you know, the... the it's, it's so inexpensive anymore to do all this stuff. And you can right. really be ubiquitous within that narrow niche if you use the things that we're talking about. And let's talk about focus, because you, you talk about focusing on industry long-term uh, strategic thinking, you know, the private equity side uh, that some of these entrepreneurs are doing. Tell us how that really is applicable to fellow entrepreneurs. Sure. Well, I think that um, this topic is so important because in most industries, if you're in the auto dealership industry, most people who have been in the auto dealership business for 20 years or 30 years, they haven't studied Dean Jackson and John Carlton and Brian Tracy. They're not also an expert in marketing. And so they might listen to their chief marketing officer some days of the week, but it's not the same brain. And so the huge power in my mind is when you combine excellent marketing or at least B plus marketing with true expertise in your industry. And once you get that, then that's the magical combination because most people only have one of one of the two. They're really good at marketing or they're really good at their auto dealership business. And so that that intersection is where all the value is created. And just to encourage those getting started, um, you know, effectively 10 years ago, I knew almost nothing about family offices. And now I can say with confidence that we are number one most visited website in the industry, number one best selling book. You know, top three conference business, we're you know really well followed in the space. Like definitely a top ten 
personal name uh, recognition globally. And that's some starting from nothing and zero dollars in the bank account. So I just encourage everybody to do it. And the other excuse I hear everybody say is that I'm not a natural writer. I'm really bad at writing. And when I was uh, taking some classes on the psychology of influence at Harvard, I submitted a final paper to my TA, who was from Czechoslovakia, and her first language was Czech. And when I got my paper back from her, it was just filled with red marks. And her first question to me was, is English your first language? Because <laughs> she thought my writing was so horrible. And that was after I had already written uh, one book. And since then, I've written nine more books. So no matter how bad your writing is, you can go to Upwork and get a $20 an hour editor or $10 an hour book editor. You know, you can find someone to help you make your writing better. That's no excuse. So, um, you yeah, know, let me comment on that, Richard, because I, I always talk about the difference between being an author and a writer. I don't know whether you do this or not. I have. I am very prolific. I do four ebooks usually a year, about every 18 months, a, a full book. And um, I have a whole team of writers because I found the value of what we're talking about here. And, and right. you know, I, they're my ideas. I'm doing the research much like you and then working with my team to have it written up. And I would have been, I'm sure my English, I can still see my ninth grade English teacher, Mrs. Arby's, she would be shocked how many books I have out there. Uh, and, and some of them have sold extremely well. The best one, about 100,000, which in this, you know, this kind of wow. industry, that's, that's a big deal. And, yeah. and so uh, you don't have to be good. I mean, yeah, Richard, you have a face made for TV. I have a face made for radio and I'm still doing the video podcast. So, you know, this is where what people want is information. You've got to differentiate yourself. And it's just, it's so right. critical to do that. Yeah. I would say that also, um, keeping everything casual and authentic and genuine, and you're just focused on adding value. Most of my videos I'm recording in Cayman Islands or Red Square in Moscow. My last one was on this terrace in Midtown Manhattan. You could see all the buildings around me. And, you know, I'm not um, a girl in a bikini that's going to keep somebody's attention for too long. So I try to be in a cool location, like, you know, in Switzerland in the mountains or something. And, and I think that uh, that's a good tip for people. I've recorded um, 250 free videos, actually, if people want to check it out at a CEO training.com. There's nothing at all for sales, just 250 free videos on how I built my business. And I think it'd all be relevant to anybody listening to this podcast. So I hope that'll be, you know, a thousand dollar or $10,000 resource for, for some of your listeners. But I would say the other template strategy that all of your listeners could use is that if you're having trouble getting started, just think about your hour long lunch break. And if you just take 30 minutes of that hour, and you just write a little blog post, let's say two paragraphs for lunch break is all you need, let's say 400, 500 words per business day, then by the end of the year, you're going to have a book written. Um, but in between, what you do is you just write the blog posts. You combine 10 of those into a white paper, maybe every two to three months. And then every you know two quarters or three quarters, you're going to have a good segment of a book complete. So it all just rolls up. You just write in a rhythm you know, like Stephen King and all the great writers do, then it'll just come naturally and you'll get really good. And what happens is that if you start from a place of even complete ignorance and say, I'm going to focus on this niche industry by writing just a little bit every day and reading and researching, you'll become, you know, a, a local expert within a year or two, a regional expert in two or three years. And, and what we've done is become a global expert on this niche, you know, over a period of five to seven years is really when we you know, establish that global presence. So 
Um, I would just encourage people to follow that strategy because it works and it costs it costs nothing to do. It's just your time and you know channeling your energy on one area. Well, and we both can name an awful lot of billionaires who have done that, who have become very high profile, who are articulate and sharing. And I can tell you, I've met many of them. They have the whole team behind them, uh, right. helping them. So it's not just slamming it out on the blank blank uh, screen. Hey. Yeah, I want to because you're 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 working with so many successful individuals, Richard. I want to go a little bit in the financial side and and talk about some of the mistakes that people are making. And you know, one of the things I'm I'm in Silicon Valley. Uh, you're in the gateway to the rest of the world down in Miami, and um, we see a lot of entrepreneurs, and they they struggle with the capital issues and. You know, so many of the entrepreneurs who are, are watching or listening to this podcast, our interview, they're they're successful already, and they're oftentimes being approached for capital. Uh, they're not startups, uh, and they're they're struggling. You know, they're they're getting traction, or they've got a lot of traction, and trying to figure out when's the right time to have capital. You know, an influx. Right. Um, I would say hope, hopefully, hopefully never, uh, unless you're willing to sell or maybe to acquire a big competitor. But I would, I just never plan on using other people's money and putting other people's money at risk. You know, we've built all of our businesses to reinvest capital and form partnerships to create new equity. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs take capital too early. And I think that investors get burned and companies get ruined by doing so. So I would just encourage people to build something from the ground up, get it profitable, beat the pavement, go door to door, cold call, get meetings, you know, work your way into boardrooms through doing, you know, an interview for a book or getting a lot of PR or just defining your sandbox so well that you attract people to you. Of the 71 billionaire families that I know, 68 of them cold called me because of the resources we have out there in the industry. And I think that is the way to do it. I was on the phone with the top three private bank uh, just recently, and they said that their number one problem was getting the right database of family offices. So I think one mistake is ruining a company by injecting capital too early and investors losing money by investing in a company that hasn't proven itself profitable yet. If the business model doesn't make money being ran on a shoestring budget, then I just wouldn't suggest a family to invest in it. You might say there's exceptions within pharmaceuticals or biotech or high tech, but those aren't the areas that most of my clients make their money or keep investing their money. So there's exceptions to every generalization you can make, but I think the capital would be never or as late as possible. It would have to be a game-changing M&A you know, acquisition of one of your top competitors, I think, to really be worth considering it. And I would instead encourage people to be generous with incentivizing people who control their niche industry and giving them equity that best based on performance or based on hurdles of the company growing to a certain level and look at how you can incentivize the people that could really drive your whole business. Instead of taking capital in, what do you really need? Do you need distribution? Do you need access? Do you need credibility? There's probably things that you can barter for directly and skip the whole part where you're taking on capital, uh, which which avoids an investor getting burned in the process. So I think that is really important. And it also encouraged people to think differently about strategic assets they have as a business. Um, there's a strategy called the leveraged resource strategy that a lot of families use. And the best example of it is a family in the Middle East who bought a 
surveying airplane um, for less than a million dollars. And in the mineral rights industry and in uh, you know mining and energy, you can get a seismic, you know, 3D seismic survey done. It could cost you a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars to get the survey done. Well, the family, instead of going out and charging each client two hundred thousand dollars, I said, let's buy the equipment. Maybe we'll charge the client the price of our gas. So in hard costs, you know, the uh, the pilot and the fuel is paid for. Maybe we'll charge them twenty thousand dollars. We know they're serious about doing it. But then we get seven percent of all the minerals extracted from that piece of land, and in that way, they made one acquisition of the airplane surveying equipment, and they got to leverage that into all these different equity stakes. And that's an example of buying an asset once when you don't have many resources and leveraging it into many different opportunities. Um, that's why we bought PrivateEquity.com because it opens a lot of doorways, gives us a lot of deal flow. It's also why we're trying to you know provide as much value as possible in the family office industry because we're you know a relatively small business in the scheme of things and we see other families using this strategy that if you can be the gateway or the gatekeeper or the toll booth that everybody has to get through within a niche or industry it's going to either allow you to sell directly to those people coming through your toll booth or it's going to allow you to set up revenue share joint venture agreements and equity stakes and the last example i'd give of that is a contract we just signed a few weeks ago with a publicly traded company. They do $450 million a year in revenue. And I don't want to say publicly if it's uh, TV or radio or magazines, but they have 117 different media assets in their platform. It's national, they're number one, publicly traded, very credible, and they want to diversify their revenue. They don't want to just be charging for advertising. So what we're doing is finding people who want access to their media and we're negotiating equity stakes and creating new joint venture brands that leverage that media platform to get them out of 100% advertising business and into leveraging their strategic asset to gain multiple equity stakes. So that's something that we've used, starting from absolutely nothing on scraping our way up, but it's also something we're helping this family use who controls a publicly traded business. So it's a very real strategy. And if you listen to a lot of old Jay Abraham tapes, he'll talk about you know, selling some icy hot type glue like goop over the radio and giving a dollar to the radio station for every, you know, little box of goop sold. And he's talked about the strategies, so I have to give him credit. He was an inspiration in kind of identifying and kind of picking those out in the family office world. Well, I, I want to point out, too, the other thing is as we liquidate our businesses, you know, we've got a capital. I've sold a number of businesses along the way, too. And what what happens as entrepreneurs, and I want to warn everyone of this, is you get you, you start thinking you've got the magic touch and right. uh, you start putting it in you know, where I love the idea of not raising capital. I've raised capital for businesses along the way. I've done venture backed. I've done angel. I've done you know different. Uh, and we actually won business. We went public. Uh, it is, you know, there there is a big price to pay. And, you know. You can do well. If you don't need it, don't do it. On the other hand, if we've got all this money, you know, we, we really get tempted to seed these other companies. I mean, what has been your experience with your uh, family office clients? I would say my experience is that most of them don't want to write a check for less than $20 million. And they're looking for companies that are not embryonic in the ocean, but they've actually started to, you know, grow some legs and they're crawling on the beach and like walking. They don't want the ones who are just like gasping for air and, you know, they want to find a business that's doing 
10, 20, 30, $100 million in revenue. We actually just sent an announcement out today to one of our LinkedIn groups because um, one family that we represent and run their family office, you know, they acquired a $450 million asset earlier this year, and we're still sitting on $150 million in cash. So we're aggressively looking for $100 million plus opportunities for us to invest our capital. So I would say that they focus on the very high end, a lot of the wealthiest of families. They're not, they can't, with $500 million, you can't do $1 million investments. You know, you'd go nuts. I think, I think the other thing is that the focus is usually on one or two or three industries. And I was interviewed by Bloomberg last week about Queen Elizabeth's portfolio and what maybe conservative returns she should have been able to achieve in her portfolio. You know, it's interesting because the reporter was really asking for a Wall Street type answer of, you know, what's the percent she should get every year? But the reality is most, you know, multi-hundred million dollar families aren't thinking, they might get pressured into thinking this by the private banker, but they generally are not thinking with the mindset, I want to achieve 6% a year. What they're thinking is, based on one or two or three industries, I want to roll up as much as I can with that industry, vertically integrate, or create a platform business, or have a niche monopoly, or use that leverage resource strategy, and they want to create new wealth based on their information and resource and relationship advantages they have from their initial wealth creation and leverage all of that within an industry over 10, 15, 20 years. And you know, one of our clients is sitting on $35 million just of land with nothing on it. And some would say that's not being ideally used, but you know, they're strategically waiting to have the right conversations with publicly traded development companies and developers that we can work with in a small way on maybe one of their projects and be on the investor side to get to know them and then long term do something much greater. So I think that um, when you think about large families and what they do, I think they're focused on you know, unique strategies uh, within just a couple industries. The other thing I would point out that's similar with a CEO who's done a good job with niche marketing and making themselves a celebrity within their little sandbox, which is equal to a billionaire, is that if you can be recognized and be top of mind and be one of the most well-known people in your industry through either selling a big business or writing the most books on your niche and adding the most real value, et cetera, then you're going to get deals that others don't see, opportunities. could be a joint venture opportunity. could be a client contract. Um, a recent family hired us, um, which will be a six-figure six contract the first year. It could lead into a seven-figure-per-year contract. They hired us six weeks after um, their first finding of my book. Never read the book, but hired me based on the expertise of the content we had given. And I think that that is something that both families and CEOs can have the advantage of. And really what you're doing is in private equity, they have something called the J-curve, where when you first make an investment, you're negative. You might have invested $10 million. And then you climb out of that through a payback period. You might get your $10 million back over five or 10 years. And you'll hear of that on Shark Tank. You know, Mr. Wonderful wants a gross revenue royalty because he's afraid he's never going to get his money back. And it's going to be a nothing burger in his, in his words. So he wants to structure it so he gets his money back. And the advantage of both billionaires and well-positioned CEOs have is you skip part of that J-curve. You don't have to invest as much because you just get a joint venture partner who has that resource you need, and you skip the part where you invest $10 million, and you find the one or two partners that can make it happen that much faster. Yeah. And the billionaires in your space will want to work. Well, and I'm gonna, Yeah, I'm going to say in that, Richard, my experience, I wrote one book. I sold only 5,000 copies, but 
that caused an individual to call me and bought our business for $25 million. So I was okay. It was a, the best book I ever wrote, even though it wasn't you know, written well. And it was one of the early ones. And, you know, this is, we talked about authority, celebrity, very important. Let's go to the next segment, which is sure. the uh, book of the day. And Richard, I, I want to go right to your book. Um, why don't you tell us what's in the single family office and why some of the entrepreneurs who are with us today uh, would find it valuable? Sure, sure. Well, anyone who's an Amazon Prime addict, you know, this is what the cover looks like. Well, it's I flashed it on the screen here from Amazon too. Yeah. So, <laughs> right, right. And uh, we really don't make any money. That's why I'm aggressive on like promoting it. It's uh, 99 cents on Kindle. It's a $7 paperback. We spent 700 hours writing the book. So it includes 30 interviews with single family offices. I recorded 40 videos all over the world in 12 different countries. Put those 40 videos into the book for free. You know, it's really a thousand dollar training program that we just start giving away um, just for the price of printing it and pushing it through Kindle, basically. And what we try to do is just say, OK, we know that the single family office industry is not going away. There had never been a book written before with the word single family office in the name of it. So we're going to write the best book possible and make the hurdle so high that anyone who reads it is going to get massive value and want to stay in touch and see how we could do business together. So that's been our strategy. And I think whether you care about learning about single family offices or not, it's almost free to grab a copy and just see how we've positioned ourselves marketing wise. And you could employ that within the IT industry or with auto dealerships or in whatever niche you might be in as a CEO. So I think that it could be useful in that regard. And you also get to learn about how some of these billionaires and centimillionaires have built their wealth and kind of created it in the first place, which is kind of kind of interesting to look at, but not everybody works well, as well. Yeah, and, and I think one of the important parts, too, is as entrepreneurs, we focus on our business. We don't necessarily build our personal wealth as effectively. And this is just so many lessons that can be learned and can be very valuable there. Let's go to the next segment, which is resources. And Richard, I've got this really nice picture of this castle. Uh, it's got a lot of water problem in the basement, the water running through the familyoffices.com. Uh, your website there. Tell us uh, what's there. Sure. Um, well, really, that's basically the number one association in the industry called the Family Office Club. And we built familyoffices.com based on writing a thousand articles on the industry and giving away a hundred videos. We do monthly webinars. We do quarterly conferences. We basically try to think of our industry like Coca-Cola thinks of distributing their drinks anywhere you go, a hotel, a movie theater, Costco, a gas station, an amusement park, you can buy Coca-Cola. Anywhere you go in the family office industry and you want to find helpful information or you have a question or you need a resource, we want to be providing that help and be there with the video, with the podcast on family offices, with, with the newsletter, with the conference. So really, we're, that's the platform business on family offices I had referred to earlier. And um, it's really through being aggressively generous that we've been able to generate the new business relationships. And I think that's you know kind of a theme of everything we've been talking about. Well, and I think many of you will be uh, curious to see what Richard's doing, but also uh, you know, for uh, learning from the financial side, but even more importantly, probably to help you grow your business. Let me go to the last segment here, which is key takeaways, Richard. And I've been taking a lot of notes. Uh, this has been just really valuable. I, I'm going to just go through kind of the big five that I've got. Number one, attract the top clients. Work with the top people in your industry. I mean, there's just so many magical things that happen with that. I see over and over. Uh, second, 
uh, the, this whole concept of niche marketing, the 360, uh, where we can own, we don't have to own the world, but we can own a narrow niche in today's world and really command success. You know, focusing on the industry is number three. And then uh, what I want to do is just a cautionary tale. You know, Richard and I feel pretty, you know, we're in the financial services industry. You think we'd want to provide capital. I mean, there are times you need capital, but don't take capital unless you need it. And definitely don't take it early and make sure you have advisors who aren't incentivized to get you capital type thing. And then when you're selling your business, you know, you want to, you, you want it. There's so many uh, decisions you can make that can create value. We're, I'm going to bring on some investment bankers, uh, some good friends who we've done a lot of transactions together in a future podcast, but you know, be careful, invest like you're a family office. Even if you don't have the hundred million dollars, you want to build that capital. You know, it's all about building your business, not for more business. It's built for a quality of life. Once you've sold your business, you want to maintain that quality of life. Richard, this has been great. I want to encourage everybody to go to AES Nation. Uh, we've got all the show notes, all the links that we talked about, uh, that, and we have the transcript. Uh, there's so many great insights here. Uh, you're going to find it all at AESNation.com. And remember, nothing happens unless you execute your clients and your future clients and all those future strategic partners that uh, Richard talked about. They're all waiting on you. Don't let them down. Wish you the best of success. Exceptional, remarkable breakthroughs. AESNation.com.